You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. I want to introduce our two other panelists. Then we are going to go through some questions together as a group. And then you're going to hear a little bit about each of our job opportunities beyond bedside patient care. So to my left, you've already met Casey, uh, entrepreneur, CEO of a skincare line, uh, exceptional PA, former SDPA committee chair. To her left, I have Rob, a longtime uh, colleague of mine who was originally from Michigan and now practices in Arizona. In March of 2012, Rob founded the Skin Cancer Center of Scottsdale, Arizona. He is the CEO and owner and continues to have a particular interest in the management of psoriasis. He practices medical, surgical, and cosmetic dermatology in the practice that he owns. He continues to pursue his passion for humanitarian efforts in Arizona and other states. He has participated in multiple international missions in the Philippines and Africa. He's also a longtime volunteer for the Society of Dermatology PAs, as well as the Michigan Dermatology PAs and the Arizona Association of PAs. We have three very different roles that you're going to hear about, and in order to know how much time to spend on each of our roles, we're going to go through some audience response questions that will help us determine what topics and what aspects of our different careers now we should spend more time with. So I need you to participate. I need you to get out your little remote clickers, and I need you to answer a couple short questions. How satisfied are you with your, with your current employment situation? Completely satisfied, mostly satisfied, neutral or meh, somewhat dissatisfied or very dissatisfied? All right, we're gonna see the results together as a group. Yay, so most of you are mostly satisfied, and then we have a couple very dissatisfied, and then somewhat dissatisfied was our second most popular answer. Have you considered other outside opportunities outside of being an employed dermatology PA seeing patients? So that's not just you wanna change practices, but you're thinking about doing something else that doesn't involve being a dermatology PA on a day-to-day -day basis, yes or no? So 64% of you have said no, with 36% of you saying yes, you have considered that. So for those of you that said you have, re have, sorry, have you researched other opportunities outside of clinically seeing patients? So I'm gonna skip this one actually, because I feel like the last question's gotten up, so we're gonna go right past it. Okay, for those of you that have researched opportunities outside clinical practice, or now you're sitting in this session thinking, hmm, these other job opportunities that I can use my PA credentials for potentially interest me. You can select as many of these topics 
as interested you. So for those of you that have looked at careers outside of bedside patient care, and those of you that are now thinking, hmm, what else can I do with that PA-C? I want you to select one or all of the topics that interest you as potentially a future career that you would have. So we're actually gonna spend 30 seconds voting on this one a little longer. So A is practice ownership. You wanna grow up and be like Rob someday and own a practice. B, providing dermatology services but in a non-dermatology setting. Your supervising physician is not a dermatologist. See some type of social media marketing like Rodan and Fields or oils. Have you considered that as your side hustle? D, pharmaceutical industry sales or marketing, and that's different than E, medical science liaison in the pharmaceutical industry. F, opening my own business that does not deliver dermatology services like Abby's coffee shop. G, education instructor, oh, I'm taking too long, healthcare administrator. So let's see how that broke down. So the highest area of interest is providing derm services in a non-derm setting, which we don't have too much in here about, but we, we can touch on, right? And then medical science liaison, which I made the shortest because I said, no, they're not going to be interested. And Rob said, no, Abby, you need more about that. Education instructor, which I, I can talk about as well. Do either one of you serve as uh, faculty, part-time faculty, or just get, okay, but that's what I thought. Okay, healthcare administrator, that would be awesome, and practice ownership. Okay, does that give us a sense of what we're gonna gear ourselves to? Okay, so with that, I'm gonna turn the podium over to Casey, and then to Rob, and then I'll be back. So, uh, as I kind of uh, mentioned before, uh, I wear multiple hats, so my primary um, focus right now is on the launch of Natural Medical Skincare line. That's what I would call a major company, so if anybody's interested in launching a major company, I'll talk about that a little bit. Um, I do a little bit of uh, real estate investing, I'll talk about that a little bit. I've been a practice administrator, so some of the practice ownership things we can touch on, um, then some consulting, so uh, kind of we'll dive in first. So. What I classify as sort of a major company, so a major company in, in my definition would be um, annual revenue over 10 million, so you're looking at like maybe 10 to 20 million or more. Um, so this would be like a global company, right? So, and, and it can be anything, it doesn't, it can be any kind of product or service, um, the sky's the limit or technology. So in order, typically for a company of this magnitude, you're gonna need some outside investor capital. Um, typically anywhere for a million to two million in your seed rounds, and then you're gonna go up from there with series A and series B. So you're definitely looking at, um, if you're thinking about anything in this magnitude, you're talking about getting some other, um, other capital invested involved. Um, you need attorneys, multiple attorneys for corporate regulations, your corporate structure, um, your legal manufacturing, all of that sort of thing. Your management team's gotta be spot on. You cannot do this kind of thing by yourself. So you're, you need at least two, if not three, top management members to partner with you, and you all need to have different skill sets. Um, in, in our example, we have uh, myself and my husband, co-founders. My husband deals with PR and marketing because he's got some uh, connections in Los Angeles and Hollywood. Then we've got another person who wears the hat for finance and operations who deals with supply chain and everything related to financials and manufacturing. And then someone else who wears the hat of um, R&D director and deals with our clinical testing and um, product development. 
So you need to have your experience management. You've got to have really, really good staff that you can count on. Proprietary formulas and products, you've got to have your IP, your patents and your trademarks locked in, um, your, your scientific data for something like this. Be really open-minded to just about anything because this this uh, global launch of a company of this magnitude, you you know, you're never you're going to be surprised every single day with what what gets thrown at you. Um, same with problem solving and, and just an unrelenting drive. So this is sort of an example of a, a day in the life of a co-founder of a company like this. Typically, it's a uh, 6:30 to 9 o'clock at night, um, and it's everything from you know, crisis and emergencies to small celebrations when there's an exciting new press opportunity, some general standard weekly meetings or monthly meetings mixed in, um, then crisis number two, then a lawyer meeting, uh, then an investor meeting. So things get mixed in. Uh, some things are pre-scheduled, but a lot is kind of on the fly and a, a lot of putting out at the fires um, with a company of this size. I love this chart because this is very. Um, this is this is my life. Uh, one day this is like the greatest venture ever. The next day it's insurmountable. The next day we have some major uh, success, and then there's a, a week or two where things are not going well, or, or an entire shipment got contaminated, or it got lost in the boat to China, or whatever it is. Um, you know, the next day we raise you know half a million in investor money, and and uh, we can move on to the next stage. So this is this is kind of my world as I know it, um, and it's been my world for five years. So I encourage people to be entrepreneurs, but if, um, on the big scale, just make sure you know what you're getting into. Real estate investing is sort of my second um, kind of entrepreneur hat that I wear. Um, I'm, I'm quite interested in residential real estate investing. I own six properties um, throughout California, Nashville, and Chicago, um, soon to be Miami. Um, so this I would consider more of a small business, right? So this would be some monthly income, but I'm pretty much happy with a break even, but this is kind of a long-term asset. This is sort of more of a retirement plan, but you can look at real estate investing either way. I've done flips and I've done long-term investing both. Um, and what you need to, to accomplish something like real estate investing is really a know your market, narrow in on a very, very small area, almost down to the zip code and just focus there, really know the numbers, know what that market, uh, what the opportunity is, have a real estate agent there that really knows what you're looking for, whether it's a flip or a long-term. Um, you need some, some stable income, some good credit, not a lot of debt, student loans are fine, uh, just not a lot of credit card debt. Um, you gotta have a good contractor if you're doing a flip that you can count on getting it done in time and know your market, know when it's a softer market seasonally and things like that. So. Um, you just have to kind of, you know, watch a lot of HGTV. Those shows are fun, but in the real world, it, it isn't quite as fun and glamorous. There's, um, you know, there's a lot of money at stake, and so you definitely want to do your research. However, I do want to bring up the point um, for those of you that are homeowners. If you don't have a second home, you can get into mortgages for very low uh, down payment, so five, ten. 20%, uh, but you can get in at 5 and 10, 20 is more standard. Um, the opportunity that I see that it doesn't work for me because I don't have kids, but if I did have kids and I did not already own a second home and I was a homeowner, I would 100% buy, uh, when my kid went to college, I would buy property there. You're going to pay to the college anyways. That's one of their primary revenue sources is room and board. So I would 100% um, 
buy property for when your kids go to college as your second home, you can do it with 5% down. And then when they move on, you can have that as a rental income property and put a tenant in there. And they typically do very well um, in college areas. They tend to appreciate, they hold really strong in market crashes. Um, so I, I have looked in, in college areas myself. Um, it hasn't made the right sense, but if I had some going to college for four years and I was gonna pay a school um, for room and board, 100% I would pay my own mortgage on that for sure. Um, so that's my tip if you're interested in, in real estate investing and uh, you can get in with a low down payment if you don't have a second home already. Um, and management skills, because you're dealing with your contractor, your broker, your real estate agent. Um, and here's sort of a day in the life of my real estate um, investor hat. So this is a little bit less cumbersome than the uh, major company um, activity that I have going on. But on an average day, I talk to the, my property manager at least maybe once a day. Um, there's usually you know, one problem in one property or another or probably with a tenant or another or maybe we're trying to buy or sell or trade something around and there's certain tax benefits and, and things, time frames and things that you need to do that and getting documents signed by certain times while I'm trying to balance um, the, uh, the skincare. So this is sort of kind of what the day in the life would look like um, dealing with residential real estate. And lastly, as a business consultant, which is uh, why I'm here speaking to you, um, really I classify my business hats with sort of financial goals. So I really have four. I have my clinical hat, which I do because I love patient care. I don't do it for the money. And that's the same reason why I do business consulting. I don't do it for the money. Um, I do it to pay it forward to the profession. And I hope that my experience as a practice manager and um, as an entrepreneur can help bring some different um, aspects of negotiations and different aspects of outlook to the perspective of our profession. Um, so I don't do this really for a, a revenue goal. That's, that's my other two businesses. Um, I do this because I like it and I want to pay it forward. So really to be an effective consultant to me, um, you've got to have the business experience in the industry as well as negotiation and mediation experience. You've got to be able to know both sides of the story and understand um, both sides to be an effective mediator. You, you need to know how to grow a business. If you don't know how to grow a business, then you really can't um, effectively uh, be a business consultant and help somebody grow. Uh, obviously, HR and personnel, you've got to understand the legalities and some of the complexities about uh, personnel and HR and have compassionate understanding and an ability to remain objective. And here's sort of a day in life there. You know, it's this is, is fairly manageable. You know, we have some emails. I meet with my, my partner, who's also a dermatology PA and also a practice manager. Um, and we kind of uh, assess different scenarios that come in for, for people who need help. And then we schedule some time to spend with them and kind of coach them through different options that they could look at. You know, we're not attorneys and we don't claim to be attorneys, but the attorneys are great with the legal part of the contract, but sometimes it helps to just talk out, take a step back with somebody objective who can kind of almost role play from the other side your negotiation process and kind of help you think about the best way to go into your negotiations. So this is fun, we love doing it. Um, you know, we'll probably have a couple clients a week and uh, we're happy to give back to the profession and, and help out where we can in that way. Um, and of course, I love Tony Robbins, so uh, I uh, definitely spend some time there. So the real joy comes in life from finding your true purpose and aligning it with what you do every day. If you're not happy every day, do something else. Setting goals is the first step in turning the invisible into the visible. So if you don't have a goal, nothing will happen. That's the way it goes. So, you know, the three of us up here have some very um, solid goals and what we want for our professional careers, and we're achieving them, I'm proud to say. But we all started in the same place. We all graduated as dermatology, as PAs, became dermatology PAs. 
Um, so I, I just hope that we can inspire you. And there's a lot of other dermatology PAs out there doing really cool things, everything from clothing lines to wellness to, um, oh my gosh, there's the, the sky's the limit. So I hope that we can, we can motivate and inspire because um, we are not pigeonholed only to being dermatology PAs. There's a lot of opportunity outside. Um, here's my contact information. If uh, anybody ever has questions, feel free to reach out. And from there, I'll hand it to Rob. Hi, uh, Rob Cascale, Skin and Cancer Center of Scottsdale, uh, Scottsdale, Arizona. I'm, it's very much an honor to be on stage with Casey and Abby, uh, both folks that I've uh, really been following even as a dermatology PA. Uh, I've, I've known Abby for many, many years, and I'm very uh, honored to be in front of my, my peers. But um, today I'm going to be talking about uh, mainly practice ownership. I'm starting with this phrase because Abby, Casey, this is, uh, I'm sure they would agree with this statement. And those of you that are thinking beyond the white coat, remember that there's risks you have to take. You're going to hear that commonly from anyone you seek advice from. It's something to remember. Go out on a limb. You're going to have to do it if you want to get the fruit. But uh, like Casey and Abby, I, I have my hat in many things. Um, and these are all things that I'm happy to answer questions about in the course of the, uh, uh, the hour here. Uh, but I am going to focus on practice ownership here. Um, this is something that I'm contact, contacted on frequently. Maybe I'd say a weekly basis I hear from maybe a couple people asking about ownership. So I'm going to focus on the how and the why and how I got there. Um, why pursue it in the first place? Well, let's get the elephant out of the room. Okay, We know that the financial potential and earnings and ownership of any business is, is greater than if you were a salesperson in it or a manager um, or a clinician. And so the financial potential is, is very high. So here's some calculations to kind of put this in perspective. Uh, these are all bits of data. Now, you'll find you guys have probably done this kind of research in, in negotiating your contracts and things, but these are some numbers I pulled off of various sources, which are listed at the bottom. Practices operating around 40 per 50% overhead. That's probably fairly accurate. Uh, in dermatology. Now, assuming all treatments are able to be done, it's about $129 per visit. Now, when I say all services, I mean your, your one-stop dermatology shop, your Mosing, your, um, you got MAs who are doing PDT and you're not spending a lot of time doing that. Uh, you're doing injectables, you have an esthetician uh, on board, $129 per visit. This is per encounter, okay? Um, assuming there's two providers in the office working full-time seeing 32 patients a day, that is close to the average. You'll see different numbers, anywhere from like 30, low 30s to maybe 40, but that's about what an average derm provider sees uh, in this country. Uh, that includes docs, okay, PAs, NPs, docs, and 188 working days a year, that's taking out vacation, holidays, etc. okay? So for each provider, if you take these numbers, you got 188 work days, 32 patients, uh, and you take that number and multiply by 129, you get that number there. It's a big number. Now, when you guys, those of you who see your numbers, you probably are seeing numbers somewhere from 500K to maybe a million in terms of what you might be generating. So if you take away that 50% overhead from this number uh, and you take those two providers, you end up with that about $775,000 of potential profit for the practice. Now, remember that profit is measured after your salaries are paid. 
Okay, so this is where the fruit is in this uh, equation. So you look at that number and you're probably like Kevin Hart, like what the, you know. So um, now keep in mind, there's a lot of variability in this. There's things that happen day to day, Casey's day in the life thing. There's things that happen and all those events cost money. And so money's gonna go in, money's gonna go out. Cash flow is a very funny thing in businesses, which I'm sure uh, Casey and Abby can tell you. So Casey's already alluded to this. Money isn't everything, okay? In fact, this survey, which was done in Forbes magazine, reasons for becoming an entrepreneur, 67% wanted more ownership of their success. You can see that money was around 50% of those surveyed, okay? 16% believe they could get rich quick. I can tell you those 16% are probably the ones who gave up because it just doesn't happen. Um, when you're talking about building a million dollar company, you're talking about building your clin uh, clinical acumen, talking about building successful, successful business, it takes time. So when people tell me that their primary goal is, I don't feel like I'm making enough money, I wanna make more money, I stop them in their tracks and I say, rethink it. Think of another reason and make it more important than money because the money won't always be coming in, especially on the front end. You're going to struggle. It's inevitable, okay? So keep that in mind, no matter what you're pursuing, what you're doing. And let's say this, money is not the only, outside of the white coat does not have to be something based on a financial gain. Medical mission work, I, one of the most fulfilling things I've done in my career. Anybody can do that. There's not a person in this room that can't do it, I promise you. They need you, they want you, they need your help. Um, mentorship, academics, research. There's not enough of us doing research. We, these are all things that you can do that are not necessarily financially driven. So don't hold yourself back because of money. Another reason to go into ownership, freedom, okay? You create, uh, control your own destiny, create and control your own time and embellishing a business philosophy, okay? How many times have you been in clinic and said, I know I can do this better. This isn't right. Uh, that last, uh, the last talk with contracts, there's shady things that happen out there. You, you as a maybe an ethical person, you say, this isn't right. I want to do it right. So create a philosophy and, and do it. Implement the ideas to improve efficiency. You look at things and say, I can, we can make this more efficient. We can make more money if we do this. We can be more successful. We can grow faster. And you have a chance to do that as a business owner. You create your own vision, okay? And you notice the asterisk here, um, and that's because, I say this because let's not forget in ownership, okay, I'm still bound to be a PA, okay, just because I own a practice doesn't magically make me not a PA, okay, or a doctor or whatever, okay, I'm still a PA, I embrace that idea, I'm proud to be a PA, and if you go into practice ownership, it's something you don't want to forget, it is important because that's who we are. Okay, so what are the obstacles? Plenty of chances to screw up and slip up here. I love Casey's graph. I mean, that could go on for the duration of your career. We, you probably experience those ups and downs in your own career. Plenty of reasons to screw up. Now, here are the things that I listed as most important in terms of starting. Financial planning, Casey also alluded to uh, capital. Uh, you need capital. Now, how much is really depends strictly on your business plan? Are you going to buy a place, rent a place, or you can do a micro office model where maybe you're taking up space in an office that already exists, but you're gonna provide dermatology services. 
um, hire staff, buy equipment, all these things have to come into mind. So for me, I started saving and planning for this in about a four-year time frame. I saved everything I could. Um, I skipped the trip to Vegas with my buddies. I didn't, I bought a used pickup truck. I loved that truck. I ended up selling it because I needed more money when I got into it. Um, and I took a small loan out, a small one. My goal was to stay out of debt as much as I could. I needed every penny of it. Every penny of it after the first year, I think I was down from maybe from six figures of just disposable cash, I was down to about $2,000 in my bank account. And I can tell you the only way I survived, by the way, was because I was consulting. I got paychecks from pharma companies I was consulting for, that's how I paid my bills. So you'll also see that business entrepreneurs are not wearing one hat because it's a matter of survival, okay? So problem two, legal issues. You've heard a lot of this already um, in the contract, but ownership laws are different from state to state. Don't assume that you can just own a practice. In California, you cannot be the majority owner. Uh, in the state of Illinois, you cannot own a practice if you're a non-physician. Um, the law in relation to insurance, for instance, Medicare will not reimburse a non-physician-owned practice. So you need some percentage ownership in the business if you're going to build Medicare. Now, you don't have to take Medicare patients, but if you are, um, we're about 75% in Medicare. I'd be sunk without it. So we need a physician. I need a physician uh, owner partner. Uh, business structure and tax law, Casey's already alluded to this. Insurance contracts and credentialing. Now, Every state is different. This differs regionally. In the state of Arizona, for the most part, PAs do not need to be individually credentialed by insurance companies. In other words, I don't need my own contract with an insurance company. Your name gets thrown on your supervising physician's contract and then under a business tax ID, and you bill through that. Okay, so that was actually easy, but I needed a doctor who was contracted with the insurance so that I could see patients. Okay, um, and then finding that collaborating physician, we are what we are, okay? We are PAs, we, I, you can't own a practice without a doctor on board. So you need someone who will actually support you. My philosophy is I want somebody working with me that's accessible, that can help me with dermatology because I fully acknowledge my limits. So I was lucky, I've been lucky in this regard, uh, which started with networking and I'll uh, talk about that in a couple slides. So the re resolutions to this is to research law. Of course, there's plenty of resources. You're, if you have a state board for PAs, if you're lucky enough to have a state board in your state, they have plenty of resources. State associations, um, look at practice ownership laws. They exist in every state. You can look them up very easily on the uh, state websites. Uh, research corporate law into forming a company, something I didn't know a lot about, but you know, there's great website resources. You could Google it and get a pretty good understanding of what forming a corporation is like. Um, I found a good attorney account. Can't emphasize that enough. You can't do it on your own. There's no way. Not if you can think you're the smartest person in the world. You can't do it without specialists in those realms. And I, I redline this because I can tell you right now is one of my most valuable resources. I work Let's say I've been practicing since, uh, in Durham since 2002. So in the course of working in multiple practices, I took every opportunity to talk to billers, insurance credentialers, like, hey, how do you, what is this CAQH thing all about? How is it that I can actually see and bill an insurance? Those are the people I learned that from. I went in the manager's office. Hey, you know, how, uh, how are you uh, writing the contracts for the new PAs? Everything I could learn from the 
the people who run the office, they're going to teach you how to do it because they do it every day. It's a, you guys all have that resource in your office right now. You don't have to be obvious. You don't have to say, hey, I'm thinking about starting practice. Just go. Say, you know, for my own education, I want to know, what is it, are you credentialing me or how do you credential me for insurances? Okay? Build your network early. You cannot shake enough hands. You never know who's going to help you. Uh, I made friends with dermatologists that were PA friendly, even physicians that were not in dermatology. Um, other practice owners that were PAs, that were also physicians. IT people where I worked, and then pharma. Pharma was a massive networking resource for me. The, and not just the reps. The reps are great. They know everything, right? They're like the proverbial grapevine in your, they know everything going on everywhere. They can help you. Um, you never know who's going to help you. Shake some hands. When you walk out of this room, there's going to be, I don't know how many companies are sponsoring this thing, 25, 30, and all of their regional and district people, some of the VPs are here, shake their hands, get in their face, make them remember you. And you know what? It's their job to remember you, okay? They want to create relationships. They're business people. So if you want to be a business person, find the business people, make friends with them, okay? You have, how many PAs are going to be at this? 500, probably something like that? You have 500 potential networking sources, okay? Shake hands, get in someone's face at the uh, reception and find out who's, who's going to help you or who might be worth knowing. Committing. This is it. This is true of everything, right? You know, you, you stand on the ledge, you've prepared, and you're just like, oh man, you know, that guy Rob said he went down to $2,000 his bank account. It's the risk that you have to be willing to take. You know, at some point, you have to just say Geronimo and go, okay? If you don't, you plan, you scheme, and you'll lose if you don't get the opportunity to go. So if you jump, you're the guy jumping. If you don't, you're the guy standing and watching. But I don't mean disparage. He probably has a very important job in this plane. But, uh, you know, that's, you have to just commit and go. So the Geronimo moment that I, I call this a Geronimo moment, two things really were important that pushed me here. My last employer, the person who employed me, compensated me well, didn't treat me very well, but he made it very clear to me that I was on his clock constantly. He didn't want, he, there was no freedom in terms of, I want this day off, no, you can't have it, we're too busy, okay? I didn't ever want that to happen to me again. So, how do you do it? You gotta become your own boss, it's the only way you can be sure, and those are the things that really pushed me out of the plane. I had been scheming, planning, but that was it. I'm like, I'm going with this. I'm going to do it. I'm all in, okay? So you pack and you trust your parachute. Two things in my parachute. One, I prepared. Like I said, four years. It was about, two, I opened in 2012. It was about 2008 when I really believed that this was something I wanted to start pursuing. I invested just little bits of time when I could, talking to people, researching. Um, and when I had the Geronimo moment, I know I, I had the right information. I just, I gotta go do it. And you know what? The one thing that really was important in the parachute was I know that I was a good Derm PA, okay? You guys, I would have 100% confidence everyone here is good at what they do. If you got that, you got plenty to fall back on no matter what happens. You have your degree, you have your skill. I have mine, you guys do too. Okay, so if you're thinking of taking a risk, hang your head on it and just decide that I've got something I can always go back to. Okay, 
So this is um, a picture on Big Beach in Maui, actually. I went to Maui Durham uh, last spring, and um, that's me, actually, in the picture. Um, very epic, but that was very hard to do with my iPhone. I set it up on some rocks and, you know. Um, but this, this, I came across this phrase in my Facebook feed. Yes, I'm on Facebook. I know, it's, I'm, I'm ashamed of it, but, you know, what can I do? Um, but this phrase came across my Facebook feed back in 2000, uh, right about when I said, all right, I'm going to go do this. 2011, when I said, I'm, I'm going, I'm going to do this, I'm going to find a place, I'm going to do it. And I read that and I said, you know, it's totally true. I've, I've got to go do this. I can fail, I can crash and burn, but if I don't do it, I'm going to regret it. I can live with failing, but I can't live with not trying. And that was it. So, can't discover the oceans without or the courage to lose sight of the shore. So, everyone here, I, I, you're here. Step one, you're listening, you're interested. So start with that. And guess what? If it doesn't work out, you might decide it's not for you. That's okay. Go be a really good Derm PA. There is no shame in that. It's a great profession. But if you want to take the risks, you got to start somewhere. You're here. So I would encourage you to pursue your passions. Okay, so I should have done a day in the life because my days are actually a lot less crazy than Casey. And when I was seeing clinical patients, I was like grinding through 44 to 48 patients a day. So my life now as an MSL is actually much uh, calmer, although it has quite a bit of variety. So let me explain to you what a medical science liaison is. It's actually a very uh, broad job with many different duties. So I gave you a quote from the MSL Society that an MSL works through a product's life cycle to help ensure that products are properly utilized effectively. They serve as scientific peers and resources within the medical community, and that's probably the primary part of my job. And they serve as scientific experts to internal colleagues at companies. So what I don't do as an MSL is I don't do any sales. Or my sweet friends will say like, oh, I was looking for you in the exhibit hall. I don't sit there at those booths. I don't come visit you at the office. I deal with thought leaders, researchers, speakers, consultants for our company, providing them with medical information about our products, our upcoming products, our clinical studies. I handle off-label um, information or inquiries. So if a physician calls into my company and says, I need to talk about an off-label use of product X, they get directed to me as the scientific expert to provide them that additional information. Every time you've gone to a pharmaceutical dinner or program or product theater and you see a, uh, a slide set, a slide deck, the MSL has not only been involved with developing that slide deck sometimes, but they always have to train the speaker. So if Rob or Casey or someone is giving a product theater or a dinner, they've met with their MSL who's trained them. A lot of MSLs will deal with publications, whether that's choosing authors or getting involved with actually writing the research into a publication. I present the scientific information to payers, Aetna, Blue Cross, whatever it may be. If they're uh, talking to the market access team of a pharmaceutical company about tiers and about reimbursement and copay cards, they always need to have an MSL there to talk about the science of the medication. 
I train our sales force on both products as well as disease state. And part of what I really love is, again, getting involved with clinical studies. Some of you who have been invited to advisory boards will also see your MSL presenting some of the scientific information. My day can be completely varied. It can be very, very busy one day. It can be very slow one day. Um, I'm based out of my house, which is wonderful that I walk across my bedroom to my office, um, but I obviously attend conferences as well. Being an MSL is really self-paced. You have to be someone who's driven to reach out to thought leaders, to make appointments at conferences, to go out and shake lots of hands, to come up with study ideas, to meet with researchers who are asking for free drug or study money. You have to find that engaging and you can pace that yourself. So my motivation to doing something different was an opportunity presented itself. Um, like these two, I did a lot of speaking for pharmaceutical companies and ran into someone at a conference who had just changed companies and he said, hey, would you ever join pharma? And I said, maybe, but I can't do sales, it's too stressful. And he said, would you become an MSL? And I said, what is that? So having that contact sort of brought it into um, my universe. For me, this job has helped me grow quite a bit. Um, like Rob said, I had the basis of being a really good clinical PA, but the things that really still stretch my capacity to this day is learning and understanding the process of FDA approval, learning regulatory, what the sales and marketing people can say versus what medical affairs can say or do, a lot of data and statistics. What end would we need to have a power that's significant? What does this mean, the p-value? What's non-responder imputation versus last observation carried forward? That's been stretching and growing me as a clinician. Um, and then, honestly, I ran out of good supervising docs. I live in a relatively rural area, and I worked for the shady people. I worked for the people that got their practice bought out by a chain, and that was it. So I was at sort of a jumping off point where I had to make some decisions. And then, you know, work-life balance, definitely a much better work-life balance as an MSL than when I was seeing patients clinically. Biggest obstacles or challenges uh, to becoming an MSL was getting the job without a doctorate. So the majority of my team are physicians, followed by PharmDs, followed by PhD researchers. So that was definitely a, a sell, but um, nothing I wasn't used to explaining to patients or referring providers. I did have to demonstrate how the PA skills were going to be beneficial um, and were going to help fill some of those voids I had, but like I already said, it's certainly been a steep learning curve. Um, I still deal with physicians that are either difficult, but to me, being a PA, that's part of our training, right, is dealing with difficult physicians. Um, and I've certainly encountered an occasional physician that learns I'm a PA and I'm their medical expert and is not too happy with it. And I've certainly had to learn how to manage that. The biggest obstacle, though, is I sometimes do miss patients. Um, my colleagues, when I tell them I miss patients, tell me I'm romanticizing it like an old relationship. Uh, I texted a dermatologist recently, and we're doing details about a study, and then he said, I got to go, I got to see patients. And I said, oh, have fun seeing patients today. And his response was, it's clearly been a long time since you've been seeing patients, Abby. And I just sort of laughed. But I, I do miss and see patients. Um, I do still teach at a university, and I've been an assistant uh, and associate professor at other universities. For those of you that clicked, that is a possibility. 
The pay will never be what you make as a Durham PA if you go to a university setting. And it's not as relaxing as you think. It really ends up being a lot of time and hoops, especially if you get into accreditation and how hard it is nowadays when a student is failing and, and the steps you have to go through in order to remove them from the program. The benefit, though, is the students are so cute. They're so excited about medicine and like everything is so awesome. You know, you might explain to them like why an ectopic pregnancy creates referred pain in the shoulder and they think like you're a wizard that you've been able to explain that. So for those of you that love that passion and excitement, teaching is amazing um, and you really get to see those students grow and they're just not jaded about healthcare in any way. It also helps you keep up your primary care skills. Um, in, in summary, being an MSL is really exciting and interesting. It's still really challenging. And I still feel like I'm just one step away from patients, especially when I have the opportunity to fund a particular study or work up a patient through a case report or look at our pipeline all the way through 2025 and say that medicine is an amazing medicine that's going to help patients. If my mic, there it is. Um, I can speak to that. Um, it depends on state law, number one. Um, pharmacies, you have to realize that um, many of you are probably in practices that dispense, okay? So, uh, and it's very lucrative, okay? And the average markup that Walgreens does on a generic is 300%, okay? So 300% profit off of a tube of triamcinolone, okay? It's massive, and it's still cheap for the patient. So huge overhead, uh, huge uh, profit, low overhead. Um, but it, it depends on the state. Um, many pharmacy uh, regulatory boards have caught on to this, and so they're really locking down on people who can dispense medication because it's killing the pharmacies. Think of it, right? They're, the pharmacies are losing their generic, mainly their generic competition, uh, ability to sell generics because um, other people are selling. So um, PA specifically owning um, that you can't really do it in most scenarios because you have to have a physician tied with your license. So you can own a pharmacy, but you'd have to have um, either uh, a pharmacist in states where they allow pharmacy, you know, the dispensing licenses allow pharmacists to, um, which is every state, or you need a physician to be able to dispense if the state allows non-pharmacists to dispense. Um, but the, the profit margin is very high especially if you're in a clinical scenario and you can dispense right out of your clinic. There's no overhead for the, the, the space and um, the, the profit margin is pretty high. We're right. working on something like that right now in our practice uh, and it's difficult because of the way that laws have changed in the state of Arizona in the last year. To dovetail on that, I'm making up my own question because I wrote a list of questions. Rob, can I have you comment on how optimal team practice would potentially change your situation. Is everyone okay, familiar so with OTP? This is OTP, Optimal Team Practice. So I, I alluded this uh, to in my talk uh, when I said, if you're lucky enough to have a regulatory board of PAs in your state, that's what every state needs. This is what we want as professionals because we need, just like nurses have nursing boards, right? They're nurses, they, they crush it in, in, in legislation because they have massive organizations representing them nationally and in every state. So um, state of Arizona, we have one. So that's it's by, not by no coincidence, practice law in Arizona is pretty good. 
but the state board can go to bat for us in terms of prescribing law. Um, in fact, I'm part of a committee, legislation committee for the state of Arizona for legislation, and we're working on these things. So um, we want OTP, we want regulatory boards made up of PAs in, in every state. I think more of these questions are for you, Rob. Medical mm -hmm. mission organizations? Um, okay, I will say this. Um, Red Cross, Northwest International, Doctors Without Borders, forget it, okay? It's a pony show. I mean, I hate, uh, they do great work, fantastic work. But if you're not somebody with some kind of massive accolade, it's, it's impossible to get mobilized by those organizations. Find small organizations, um, anything that's term specific. I can't really uh, give a specific example because most of the missions I found were, were small Christian organizations that I just Googled, saw that they were um, um, Christian organizations, and because those people need help. That's what I mean. They need help. They, they're not massive organizations that do massive fund campaigning. Um, they need, they literally are non-profit organizations that will take any help that they can get. Um, so if you're a Christian person or non-Christian person, they, they will happily take you. And just be careful what you're getting into. You might get into scenarios where um, perhaps they're um, true uh, religious missionaries entitled with their medical mission. There's nothing wrong with that. It just might not be your thing. Um, talk to me afterwards. I can give you some names of things. Um, I'd have to Google them because I know them. There's one in Seattle, actually, that's really cool uh, that I'm looking at, but I'll be happy to give you. But I, that's my general advice is forget the big ones, find small ones, uh, particularly start with um, Christian ones because they're easy to find and they always need help. Valiance Passion to Heal is, if you have not done it, and before it goes away, I highly, It won't highly, go away. Yeah. It's not okay, going I forget, away. I forgot there's actually a representative from um, Ortho Dermatologics here. Fantastic, unbelievable experience. Uh, they go, there's two opportunities. You can go to uh, India, Delhi, right, it's Delhi? Yep, India and, and Africa. Or uh, Kenya, uh, to, out to the Masimara. Unbelievable experience. Uh, the organization is that they, this third party, this organization is a nonprofit based out of Canada. It's amazing. But if you have the chance to go, all I'll say is go. Do it. Make it happen. You will not regret it. It's an unbelievable experience. What are the disadvantages of being a PA versus practice ownership? What's the downside, Rob? I would say, number one, um, you're, you're dependent solely on the physician, honestly. Um, if they don't, if they're not a good business partner, if they're not a good clinician, it could really sink you because you can't practice without them. Um, I went through that a little bit, uh, but I've been pretty lucky so far. I'd say you need to find a physician who's going to support you and be involved at a level that you're okay with. That might be a lot or it might be a little, but you've got to figure that out and you've got to find the right physician who's willing to be like, okay, I'll show up two days a month, I'll see patients, give me X percent, I'm cool with that, I'll be accessible to you whenever you need me. There's probably most of us in this room that can probably work in scenarios just like that. It's just that you're paying the bills, okay? It hinges on your relationship with your physician, I would say is number one, uh, the number one difference. But as a business owner, wouldn't you agree that there's, you have just as much benefit as a business owner besides the state laws about you know, working around the ownership clause as far as the ownership you yes, benefit, it, absolutely. Same, um, same the benefit. ownership, once you get outside of that legal relationship, medically speaking, absolutely. Um, you know, running the company, you have the same fringe benefits as any physician would. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Can you elaborate, Rob, on 
not needing insurance contracts and bill under the supervising physician, and yeah. then would the physician have to be on site during the No, you know, I, I'm glad someone asked this because I was watching the last lecture. This is strictly dependent, uh, it's sort of regional, and it also is state-based, okay? So not every state requires uh, PAs to be on a contract, okay? So that your name is attached to the physician, for the most part, or multiple physicians with, on an insurance contract. They just add your name onto their contract. Typically, what you would do is bill under the businesses, your practices, EIN, their tax ID number. So this is where this is a problem, though, with PAs in medicine. We're invisible on paper. So it's not necessarily a good thing. It's a good thing in terms of working, but it's not a great thing professionally. Um, so you, you can bill in, in states where you do not require a contract. Um, you, you have no, there's no other way to bill other than the business EIN, therefore on the physician's contract. Now, if you're choosing, if you're in a state where you are contracted, you have a, a credentialing contract with the insurance company, but you're ignoring that, or maybe you don't even have one, and you're building, billing under the physician, okay, that might be what you mean, whoever asked that question. That's a little shaky, uh, because you have the, the insurance, the payer has to know who they're paying. Who's providing the service? On paper, what that looks like to the company, the insurance company, is that the physician is providing the service, and it's just not true. So um, I think that's a very shaky situation. I'd say if you're in that situation, I, I would be very careful, and I would call you know, our, our attorney friend from the previous lecture. Interested in healthcare administration, work in a university setting, since the NPs have a DNP, most of them don't have PhDs, I get overlooked with my MPIS. Where can I get additional credentials to work in administration? There is a plethora of universities where you can get PhDs or doctorate health science or that new Lynchburg program, I forget what the exact degree that they give you is called. I'm in a PhD program that's public policy and healthcare administration. Um, there's many opportunities, brick and mortar schools or online education to truly get that PhD or doctorate or the Lynchburg program. I think the important point though, and I'm sort of the example of it, I got into a career that typically needs a doctorate without that doctorate. And I got there by networking and being a known volunteer. So uh, if that's something that interests you, make sure you're volunteering for hospital committees. Make sure you're, you're speaking to the administrators so when there is that opportunity, you're not just sending your CV or resume blindly to HR and hoping they overlook it. You're handing it to a specific person who then may be able to push it through because my contact from the other pharmaceutical company was really able to bypass HR and get it to a decision maker because I didn't have that doctorate on my CV. In my area, many independent practices are joining large groups because of the pressures and difficulties of having a solo practice. Have you seen that trend too, and does it make you reconsider your business model? Wow, that's like a kick in the groin to me. Um, Hmm. Kate, let me, I'll answer that, but Casey, do you have any? Yeah, I can speak to that yeah. a little bit. So nationwide, we are seeing a lot of consolidation. Florida and throughout the central part of the U.S. there, and also throughout uh, more inland California, there are some massive groups, um, uh, consolidation groups. 
um, coming in and they're buying up the uh, independent practices. So I think the recent study from Medscape came out that only 25% of the new residents coming out are going into solo practice. Most are joining these large groups. So not only are they buying up the existing practices, they're also attracting the new residents. So this is a challenge because, um, and I, I'm considering taking this on as a personal challenge actually, because no longer you're negotiating with a supervising physician, now you're, now you're negotiating with a CEO. Um, and that's a, that's a different animal. You're dealing with a CEO with a board of directors who has a, a company, a major company like I was talking about before with well over 10 million. You're talking about 10, 20, 30 million dollars in revenue. Um, or more for these large groups. So the negotiation process is um, complicated for our profession and even for the physicians as well. So um, I can't speak as an independent um, clinic owner. Rob can speak to that a little bit more, but it, it's happening. It's a trend that's happening and it's increasing um, and it's affecting the physicians as well. So it's something we all just need to be aware of. The solo, the solo practices are out there. Um, but it is something you definitely, if you can make friends with the office and the business manager in your solo practices, I can emphasize that was the best advice. I did the same thing as well, and that's how I got a lot of my um, consulting uh, expertise from understanding the business from the inside. Try to get a handle of how healthy your solo practice is and know how vulnerable you might be to these consolidation groups because you don't want to get blindsided by something you know, coming all of a sudden, your, your practice is purchased and, and acquired and your whole structure will change. So if there's a way that you can befriend your office manager and the billing and um, the collections, whoever they may be in the office and get an idea of how healthy and stable um, and strong your solo practice is, because right now all solo practices are a bit vulnerable to this consolidation and they're attracting the new grads, so there's not as many new solo offices open opening up as there were a decade to go. Um, so to that point, it's, it's out there, but Rob can speak to the business um, model specifically. Yeah, so just show of hands, how many have been in a practice or in a practice that went through corporate buyout? Uh, okay, you know, maybe less 20. than a third. Okay, yeah. but it's happening. So um, you're right. So as a, if, you're a, if you're a solo specialty office, uh, it's pretty scary. Uh, because the reason why this is an issue, okay, just to be clear, um, the way insurance contracts work is if, if uh, dermatology practice XYZ has 18 offices in the Phoenix Valley, they can go to Blue Cross Blue Shield and say, hey, um, you know, what, what are you paying people for a 99212? Uh, $48. Well, I'll tell you what, we'll do it for $43. Uh, we have 18 places in the Valley. Blue Cross says, cost analysis, boy, that's gonna save us $2 million a year. Next thing you know, I get a letter as a Blue Cross provider saying, we don't need you anymore. Okay, this, this is, that is what people are afraid of, okay? Solo uh, derm practices. So my goal is, no, it doesn't make me change my model because nothing changes in terms of how you build. You have to be successful. So my goal is two things. I need to become, um, valuable enough as a practice that somebody wants to buy me, okay? And it's not my desire to sell, per se, but if somebody shows up and buys the practice and it's a nice piece of money, it's not a failure. It's maybe not what you want to do, but it's not a failure. You got to take wins and losses in, in entrepreneurship. Two is you want it to be strong enough that you don't have to sell it, okay? So for me, that means I have to expand. So no, it doesn't change my model. I'm going to take them on, you know? I got this far, 
if I, I said to somebody the other day, um, if you don't want to get if you don't want to get beat by the man, you got to be the man. So uh, I'm I'm gonna try to be the man. And Rob I, that's is my goal. <laughs> Another way to insulate from that that was really awesome. Yeah is, uh, you know, aesthetic services or cash pay. So there's, um, you know, whatever you can do to buffer with either aesthetic or cash pay medical, um, you're going to help insulate from yeah. the, the risk of the consolidation. Yes, no matter what happens, if Blue Cross pulls my contract, they can't touch my cosmetic business. It will always be there. So yeah. build a strong cosmetic business. We're, we're working on that now. We're, I've, we've, been, we've done a lot of promoting and marketing for cosmetics uh, because it's fee for service. They can't touch it. It's yours no matter what happens. Yeah. A few years ago, SDPA offered one-on-one -on -one time with Casey and Abby. This is extremely valuable. Are you going to offer this again? I'm going to tell you I'm not because I think it's completely inappropriate for anyone who works for a pharmaceutical company to talk about Durham PA salary. Uh, and that may be some of my historical unhappiness with other companies doing that. But Casey, that might be something. So, uh, you know, I'm a reference. I'm here. I was actually supposed to be here tomorrow. was going to uh, offer some of that, but I had to change my flight and fly out tomorrow morning. Um, but I am here today. Uh, if anybody uh, needs to do a more um, elaborate, more than just a, a quick question, we need to run some numbers or, or talk about a little bit more of a complex um, topic, I'm here. If it's really complex and we need to get my business partner involved as well and kind of get two heads involved, um, there's a lot of conflict that needs to be resolved. We, I'm happy to, we can set something up. Um, we charge a small amount for our services. Uh, it's really just to cover kind of our time and our basic website and minimal, you know, we're not, we're not looking to make money off the profession by, by any means, but we are here as a resource. And also on the point of the consolidation, um, we are here as a resource for that as well. Um, so, uh, you know, we only have so much that we can do, but, you know, to Rob's point, we, we're not afraid and we will go to bat for our profession and we will go to the CEOs of these groups and we will negotiate with them uh, on behalf of our profession. So, um, you know, please reach out and we'll, we'll do what we can on a small scale. And if we're getting enough numbers reaching out, um, you know, we, we will get something organized to get in front of those big groups. And if you do speak to Casey and it's beyond a three-minute conversation, I would encourage you to engage her services because her time is valuable. I'm sure on the plane ride home, you'd be equally as unhappy if someone said, can you please look at this mole? Well, what do you think I should do with it? And then I have this rash. What's this rash? How many of us are really excited to provide what we're paid to do free of charge? So please be respectful of Casey's time as well. Uh, um, real, real quickly, sorry, Abby. Um, I will, uh, if, if you see me, just grab me. I'm happy to speak to anyone. Um, I will be in the mingle zone uh, several times, probably more than I should be. Um, but uh, I will be, uh, if you don't have the app, uh, um, I'll also be posting when I'm going to be in the mingle zone. If you want to ask me some questions, um, I'm happy to speak with you. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at uh, Rob Rocks Hard. <laughs> um, message me if you want to if you want to arrange to catch me sometime while you're here I'm happy to take a couple minutes and I like a good glass of wine so I can be bought pretty cheap like it's about the bar with a glass of wine you'll get me all night <laughs> I'm going to combine the top question and the third question here so MSL salary we can talk about that in the mingle zone but for those of you that know me what do you think yes I work with a team of mostly physicians and doctorates but I've left clinical practice okay any more questions up at the top of the screen, Brian? Ah, oh, this is a great question. I'm going to ask Casey this. What would you say the signs are that you need to move from clinical practice and try something else? Three days in a row, you don't want to go to work. Ooh, that's, that's it. Good, 
That's a you wake one. up three times and you don't want to go to work three days in a row, you need to make a change. So if you cannot make a change with a negotiation, you need to reconsider a life change. So three days in a row, that was uh, something that was shared with me very early on by a mentor uh, who was in the medical field. And um, I probably extended that a little bit longer. I, I separated from my prior practice uh, for the very similar reasons that Rob did um, because of the, the time control issue. And I, I do still see patients um, you know, about six or seven days a month, but in an aesthetic practice and I completely control my own time, uh, I literally email them and say, this is when I'm available. Um, and they, they, they block the schedule and they get MAs to help me out when I'm there. Um, and so if you're not happy for three days in a row and you cannot see a way to negotiate out of it, you need to think about moving on. It's a great litmus test. Um, do you find it hard to keep up your certification? I mean, no more than being a derm PA, right? In fact, I still talk about and learn and engage a lot of dermatology. So it's not any different than that tiny little percentage of derm that was on our research. But I'm doing the pilot program, so for any other pilot program miserable people like me, please let's touch base and exchange info. Do you want to go down a little bit more, Brian? We know that the slides will be available. How much more lucrative is owning a practice versus being an employee? I mean, Rob, you kind of answered question. that in your slides, yeah. right? Um, <laughs> it's time sensitive, but you saw the numbers that I posted in there, okay? So assume that you have a successful practice, you're operating where you should be operating in terms of overhead, and you're seeing the amount of patients you should be seeing and you're providing a full range of services. You saw the numbers, uh, you know, up there. Um, so what those numbers translated to is if you're paying yourself $180,000 to $200,000, your salary is part of the overhead, there was uh, somewhere around three hundred to $330,000 of potential profit if you're working like a normal derm PA. But how long did it take you to ramp up from day one to that point? So let's see, I'm six years and some change in, so I'd say six years and some change. Yeah. I mean, honestly, um, they say things like, oh, you know, third year, you'll hit a smooth spot, fifth year, if you're not making it, it doesn't apply to medicine, guys. It's not a normal business. But um, it just depends on where you feel like you are in terms of success, what your overhead is, um, what your lifestyle is. Do you have a family? This is really tough. I can tell you, if I had a family, if I had a wife or kids, I'd be a bad dad and probably a bad husband um, for some, a lot of this, okay? So it, it's a matter of perspective um, and what it's really worth to you. But yes, I mean, you gotta plan for a five to six year plan is not a bad place to be. I've known people who went in three years and they were like, ah, I'm out. And it's fine, there's nothing wrong with that. They, they sold their practice for a small amount of money, but they got out of it all right. There's, no, there's no, nothing wrong with deciding to go another route. And I know we're over, so I just wanted the last question. How'd you meet your SP? Oh, um, <laughs> over a drink. Um, okay, so that's not accurate. 100% accurate. Basically, it was all about networking. I talked to mainly pharmaceutical people who would be open to this idea of working with a PA, and it, it was sort of two extremes. They're either older and looking at retiring, right? But then they look at, okay, if somebody I know, somebody that I trust, I'll go work with them and make some money while they're working, or they're younger and they want to build something with you, okay? But I got connected to my first SP, uh, who has since retired. Um, I got connected to him through a pharmaceutical rep. You know, they introduced me, they, sent her, they arranged for us to have a drink, and by the end of the conversation, we shook hands and said, yeah, let's do this. Um, my second SP was someone I met when they were a resident. Residents, 
If you, if you run into a Durham resident, hey, where are you from? Oh my mm -hmm. gosh, I'm from there too. Shake your hand, let me buy you a drink. You never know. You never know if that person's gonna be like, you are really cool, I'd love to go in business with you. Um, there's, there, it's, there's a lot of hustling, man. You know, I yeah, can tell you these two people are hustlers up here. And um, it, it's just, that's just what it is. It doesn't take anything extraordinary, just making contact with people, um, being friendly and remembering people. This is how business people work. Thank you very much. We'll be around for the rest of the evening and the welcome reception. This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.